Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
para proteger nossa cabeça e nossos filhos e, e nossa família máximo possível. Então, queria agradecer Brother Yuka, um amigo, uma pessoa que está conhecida desde por falar de minha infância, uma pessoa de comunidade, uma pessoa de bom coração, para, para pronto, é dar uma oportunidade hoje de estar na sua plataforma, na, na Facebook Live, e tem tchau pessoas que seguir, e tem tchau temas que estão tocando nela, e estão desabafando, tchau coisas que tchau alguém está reflando a vez que está expressa direito, uma pessoa que está sempre ligado uh, com situações e coisas que não está passando, portanto, é só entertainment. Estou um, a agradecer bastante para ser tempo, para ser oportunidade na tenta de espalhar essa esse programa de hoje máximo possível. Esse programa de hoje, como nos toca na história de um, imigração de calverdianos para a América, Estados Unidos, ou no Podiflã, Estado de, de na Nova Inglaterra, máximo, para morrer mais em Massachusetts, Estado de Massachusetts, Rhode Island, também Connecticut. Portanto, e como nos toca naquele tema ali, e e nesse tema, Linhos, também hoje, qual é que é um grande, grande, grande e respeito que a cidade de New Bedford merece, a hora que está falado na história de Calverdianos na América, nunca pode falar nada, também se nunca fala na New Bedford. Não tem que respeitar, não tem que entender, não tem que ter conhecimento para não poder dar o respeito que é necessário cidade de New Bedford. New Bedford foi muito, muito importante por um período de quase 100 anos. Portanto, e, então, cumprimenta todas as pessoas na, na New Bedford, especialmente todos os calverdianos de New Bedford. Uh, portanto, é, é muito importante. E dentro que lá, e então, dedico esse programa de hoje para Norberto Tavares. Não começa com aquela música ali, não abre com Norberto Tavares. É uma pessoa de cultura, uma pessoa histórica, Uh, hoje em dia tinha alguém que até por imenca conhece quem que é Norberto Tavares, mas a mim lembra, na minha infância eu tinha um período de tempo que era um, 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 um músico tio popular, eu tinha uns, uns músicas que tive tio sucesso na Cabo Verde. Portanto, os meus primos que te lembra de que lá tem uns, uns comédias que esta foi de mim na minha infância, vamos aquela música de Maria. Tamara, cumprimento para minha primo Nuno, uh, na, na praia, Nuno Pires tudo ser família, tudo pessoas, minha família lá também na, na praia, e sim, eu soube que ali, portanto, e canto que o Fernando Roberto Tavares sempre me lembra, Nuno, para fazer uns, uns gozos, né? Mas, sem mais cerimônia, eu queria entrar na, na programa, me tem na linha, gosto de, nos também fazer, nos também fala sobre uh, um excelente, excelente livro, é, para dar continuação Uh, o último podcast que eu fazia com a senhora Jeannie Costa sobre um livro que se pai uh, uh, e escreveva e que ela é bem publicada que chama The Making of the Cave Virgin. É um livro que merece estar na casa de tudo o Calverdianos na América. É um livro que merece estar na toda escola que tem grandes populações de estudantes calverdianos. É um livro que está lés fácil, é um livro que está lés sábio, é um livro que te traz tchau, tchau, tchau informação. Em que sabe que mais que pode falar aquela coisa ali. És ali, tudo alguém que soube. Nós dividimos essa informação ali. Para é uma coisa que te beneficia a nós e a nossa família. 100%. Portanto, para dar continuação naquela, para não conseguir melhor matéria, 
Hoje nos também fala sobre um outro excelente livro que descobre também. Uns já têm conhecimento dele, outros que têm. Portanto, não te apresenta para uns, não te introduz para outros. The Making, uh, oh, desculpa, Between Race and Ethnicity, The Caverian American Immigrants, uh, 1860-1965. Então, entre raça e, e ethnicity, ok? De, 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 entre raça e ethnicity, uh, uma história sobre uh, cabo-verdianos uh, americanos, imigração, história sobre imigração, 100 anos de imigração para a América. Uh, foi escrito para a doutora um, Marilyn Halter, e, que era professora de estudo de, de história na, e, na Universidade de Boston University, onde que é a universidade uh, mais bem respeitada, não só na Boston, mas na América. Portanto, é para hoje nível e qualidade de instituição. Mas antes de, no, e, de, de integrar logo o assunto, também tem uma pessoa na linha ali, a, a senhora Marcy uh, de Pina, é uma pessoa que tem seu conhecimento de não só história de calverdianos ali na América, mas a Marcy também é uma pessoa que estava seu integrado na comunidade antes, e para, antes que, e, que mudava para, que muda para New Jersey, onde que hoje está reside. E também é uma pessoa de música, e gosta de música, é, é DJ, mas está fazendo seu trabalho profissional à volta de cultura em geral, e mais social e, e ela tem é, bom então deixa ela te explica e a, qual é que é a relação com o data halter e pegar um, um, uma entrada uma introdução a, qualquer outras coisas que crê um, aumenta nela é sempre bem-vindo para mais de saber mais informação que tem é é show é demais portanto há aqui pessoas bem na plataforma de de ilhacast não tem que ter o máximo possível para morrer ali, é o único que não te divide informação para não educa companheiro. Portanto, não te espera, mas não está bem, e não está bem a polícia, não está bem utiliza, e esse uh, uh, es broadcast de hoje, e também, não te aconselha, não te implora tudo pessoas, não vai na Amazon, amazon.com, não e compra esse livro ali, eu compro esse livro ali, para esse livro ali é o único livro necessário para estar na tudo casas calvardiano. Esses dois livros que eu li, nunca tem nenhuma afiliação quase. Simplesmente, a mim, é um cidadão que, 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 que lê, um calvardiano também, que lê, que trate-se. Esses dois livros ali empower me, e dão-se o poder e psicológico, mental, e dão-te o moral também, e dão conhecimento, e, 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 e pôr mais humilde também. Falar com as histórias de, de sacrifício que os gentes passam, e te dão humildade para ter mais respeito com pessoas. Mas antes de tudo, que fica mais na linha, só trazer a senhora Marcy na, na, na linha, bem dar mais informação para uh, introduzir a, a Dr. Halter. Hello, Marcy. Olá, boa noite. Olá, olá, Luiz. Marcy, Kiko, é, muito bom para você. Sim, para você, muito bom não te falar na crioulo, mas Dr. Halter não tem que falar em inglês. 
mas também porque eu uso a mil vezes palavras da Fajan, não tenho que falar em inglês, mas eu sabia que o muito, muito obrigado por você aceita esse convite e então dar o microfone para você apresentar o Dr. Halter, para explicar para dar as informações sobre sobre Dr. Halter e qual é a nossa relação e também que você acha sobre esse livro ali. Minha já que você um livro que para mim foi foi um luz, foi muito, muito importante e por isso que eu creio para não devolver essa informação ali. Mas, Sandal, a partir de agora, por favor, apresentar o Dr. Halter e depois vou acrescentar qualquer coisa mais que você falar sobre o livro, esse livro ali, Between Race and Ethnicity. Okay, obrigado. Thank you so much for having me. I, I will speak in English so that Dr. Halter can also understand. But thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be a part of this program and to be able to be a representative of our Cape Verdean culture here in America. Um, I believe that Cape Verdeans here in America have a very distinct position in being the first voluntary African immigrants to this country. Um, and we provide a bridge between Africans who were forced to come here, uh, that came here enslaved, and Africans that are on the continent. And in many ways, we help to provide that bridge for people to return. So, portando nozilla, and uh, also the, the you know regreso as well. So it's it's really a pleasure to be able to be here today and be a part of this program, which is featuring Dr. Marilyn Halter, who I intimately know because she is my bonus mother. Um, so not only do I have great respect for her as a scholar and as somebody who's contributed to our culture and to the scholarly canon of work around Cape Verdean Americans and our history here in this country, I also am blessed to have her as a member of my family. And she has been a phenomenal addition to our family and I believe also a phenomenal addition to our culture and to the history of our people here in the United States. Not being of Cape Verdean descent herself, um, she was asked as a historian, uh, she's a distinguished uh, historian, Professor Emeritus of Boston University, as you mentioned, uh, which is a very well-respected university, not only in Massachusetts and in the United States, but worldwide. Um, but as a professor of history and of American studies with a concentration focused on immigration, she came in contact with our culture through friendships that she had built. You mentioned Jeannie Costa, and that was one of the friends who invited Dr. Halter to be a part of a project that was documenting uh, Cape Verdean American history, and she accepted. And in doing that, she helped to solidify and the canon of work that's dedicated to the people of our culture, of our nation that are here in the United States. Prior to that, there was really no scholarly work, no academic work, um, historical work um, that was documenting in the type of way that it was documenting. Um, and certainly not with this type of sensitivity and the, um, the real heart that Dr. Halter brought to this project. So, um, you know, her, her work precedes her. Uh, she's written mo a multitude of art articles, several books, um, including the Historical Dictionary of Cape Verde. And um, in addition to that, has also looked at other cultures in West Africa. And even though this is not, was not her culture, she has represented us so well that I believe, and because she has represented us so well. Um, it's, it's, again, it's really an honor to be able to 
to call her a member of my family, but I've also had the distinct pleasure of working with her. I worked with her on one of the books that she she published, um, Africans in America. And um, we also worked together on a project for Afropop Worldwide, which was documenting Cape Verdean American history. So uh, not only do I have uh, the great joy to have her as a bonus mother, but also as a, a mentor from a scholarly and academic perspective that I can look up to. Um, my studies were centered around um, Cape Verdean culture. In particular, I was looking at music from an ethnomusicological standpoint and looking at how music moves political and social um, movements. And as we all know, music is a huge component of Cape Verdean culture, and it played a pivotal role in our revolution. And Dr. Halter was indisposable to me in my personal scholarly work. And, you know, it's truly a pleasure to be able to introduce her to the audience in this program. The book that she wrote, Between Race and Ethnicity, the Cape Verdean American Immigrants from 1860 to 1965, is so important and so crucial for Cape Verdeans, especially those that were born here in the United States and might not always understand the historical context in which their ancestors came to this country. I myself am a third generation Cape Verdean American, and many of us that were born in this country do not speak Creole and don't necessarily understand all of the struggles that our people went through prior to coming here, the reasons why they came here and what happened when they got here. So this book is extremely important, not only for Cape Verdeans that are in Cabo Verde still, but also for Cape Verdeans that are here in the United States and for people in general to get to know us, to get to know who we are and the great contributions that we have made in this country. So without further ado, I would like to present to the audience, Dr. Marilyn Halter. Uh, yes, I will bring Dr. Halter uh, live um, right now and uh, I will keep you uh, also your microphone uh, open so you could interject anytime you wish to. Uh, but um, one thing that's very important, and I'm just going to mention it now, uh, I do want to initiate, um, initiate at least a dialogue to make uh, this book and the making of the Caverdian one of the two books that in certain public schools should be I don't know if it's, I don't like things to be forced upon people, but I know that they do have for, for different uh, classes certain books that they give people to read. But I think for schools like Brockton Public Schools, New Bedford Public Schools, all these public schools that have the large uh, Verdean, uh student bodies, these two books, uh, uh, if they're going to give anybody books to read, I mean, reading is reading. These books are books that I think people is going to make a huge impact and these students are going to gravitate towards. And hopefully it was, it's going to spark a dialogue between generations, between grandparents and, and grandchild, uh, grandchildren, um, uh, parents and children, and so forth. And this is a, the type of uh, a thing that I think is needed. And if we do this, uh, I believe it's going, to, um, it, it's going to have a tremendous positive impact. And uh, hopefully, uh, like Brockton being a huge city with a large Cape Verdean uh, 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 people living there, residing there, and going to school there, 
and I know they're listening. Um, this is one of the campaign that I want the dialogue for a campaign that I really want uh, to, to to get going. So hopefully uh, you will uh, assist in collaborating, however that is possible to get this done. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring Dr. Halter um, on, and uh, we could go on from there. Basically. Uh, you two are going to do most of the talks because that's where the information is, and I'll be interjecting with questions. Welcome, Dr. Halter. Hello. Uh, you're live. Yes, uh, you you are live on uh, EliaCast podcast. As I mentioned to you, this is Wonderful. a program um, th- that's going to be heard all over. So um, it, I will turn the microphone to you, if, uh, whatever you uh, that you need to express at this time, and then hopefully we'll go right into uh, more or less, not a Q&A, but more like a conversation about this, uh, this incredible book that you, uh, that you worked on. Well, thank you, Luis, for inviting me to join your wonderful podcast series and for your enthusiastic and appreciative words about my book on the history of Cape Verdean Americans. And thank you, Marcy, for the beautiful introduction. It brought tears to my eyes. You know I'm a crier. (laughs) So I I should have brought a box of Kleenex over here. (laughs) Um, But before I begin to talk about the book, um, I just wanted to say to our listeners that with the world in in such distress, I'm, I'm hoping you are finding ways to stay safe and healthy And if you or any of your family members are on the front lines as health, home care, or other essential workers, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart. So let me first try to explain how a Jewish girl from northern Minnesota, whose claim to fame I used to say was having attended Bob Dylan's Bar Mitzvah, But I was thinking this evening that it's time to revise that line to say my real claim to fame is being Marcy Bettina's bonus. Um, And, um, but anyway, as, as, so how did this uh, Midwesterner end up researching and writing about Cape Verdean Americans, an Afro-Portuguese population in New England? So as you can imagine, I could answer this in a longer, short version, but let me just say that in the mid-1970s, largely through chance and circumstance, I found myself living and working in southeastern Massachusetts, and through my community involvements, friendships, uh, as with Jeannie Costa and my first Cape Verdean friend, Carol Pimentel, and and my interest in local history, I was drawn into close association with Cape Verdeans. And these were heady times. Cape Verde had recently achieved its independence, and my friends wanted to find ways to actively recognize this achievement and to foster pride in the Cape Verdean culture and to educate the American community. And so they formed an organization called the Cape Verdean Universal Development Association, and I was asked to join with them. Once they realized that I was trained as a historian, I had moved to New Bedford having um, completed all the requirements for uh, for a PhD in American Studies, but I hadn't written my dissertation yet. And so, um, but 
well before I, I actually decided to do a dissertation on Cape Verdean Americans, I started organizing an archive of materials for um, the, the local community. And that, and I did so enthusiastically. I, I learned so much from, from doing that. So then in the early 1980s, in part because my Cape Verdean friends encouraged me to go back to graduate school to finish my degree, I wrote um, a doctoral thesis on the history of Cape Verdean immigration to the, this country. And that dissertation was revised to become my first book, which was Between Race and Ethnicity, the subject of our conversation this evening. I just feel greatly privileged um, to have had the unparalleled opportunity of witnessing the Cape Verdean experience from up close. I made trips to Cape Verde. I participated in Cape Verdean uh, cultural events, and I've been welcomed into the homes of Cape Verdean residents and been, been treated to that very special Creole hospitality. And the longer story of my close links with this community keeps adding chapters. Is actually, I had finished the research for the book on um, Cape Verdean Americans when I met and married Jonathan Dupina, Marcy's awesome father, a Cape Verdean American. And then Cape Verdeans became not only friends and colleagues, but also to me, it, it just seems to be my <laughs> destiny. I don't know if you want to um, open up to questions or if you want me to talk about um, what I think are probably the most important themes from the book. Um, how do you, would you like to proceed from here, Louis? Well, uh, what we'll do, because I really want to focus, uh, I want to do justice to this book because um, it's, you know, it's not because I'm, I'm really speaking to you, but it, it, it's really the, you know, when something is when something is good, uh, we we have to really you know call a spade a spade, uh, and 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 my my goal is to get people to go get this book, and because I know if they get this mm -hmm. book, uh, it's going to help them tremendously. Uh, so I guess the best way to do it because we're not together, <laughs> um, and and we're in different states. Uh, so we won't speak over each other. We will actually, um, I could ask you some questions, and then Marcy could interject um, at any time um, and add whatever she wants, she feels it's uh, appropriate to add to make it, uh, to make it even better. But um, in dealing with the, with the book, can you, can you give us uh, an understanding? Obviously, I've read the book, and I've took notes. Uh, but can you uh, give us I'm an understanding? Sorry. I, I, I got, it got a little yeah, um, staticky. Uh, so you said, can, can I give you an understanding of? Yeah. Uh, I before I, I, I get that, that, can you hear me? Can you hear me okay? Because I am using a headset, and I just want to make sure that it comes out clear. Uh, are, you, are you able to hear me okay? Yeah. It is staticky. So, uh, it's been staticky the whole time. Oh, okay. So, all right. So let me make sure because I don't know how it's going to uh, come out. Um, and Marcy, Marcy it, has gonna... said to me in a text that it was staticky for her, too. I don't know if it still is. But... Oh, okay, okay. All right. So yes, it is. I'm going to remove uh, 
the headset. Can you hear me better now? Hello? Uh, could, could you say a few more words? Yes. Can you hear me better could right now? Could you say a few more words? No, it's just right. it might even be worse. Yeah, I think I think the headset, it was actually better. What, what about now? Is it better now? Uh, yes. Hello? Is it better right now? Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It's better now. Is it better for you, Marcy? It's better? Okay. Yes. Can Marcy also hear now, me? I, just... I can hear you, yes. Okay, good. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll keep it this way. So what I want to do is is really address this book, but obviously, uh, you know, it's just we're not going to be able to go all through uh, through this. But can you give us an understanding? Because this is also a scholarly book. It's a book with a lot of um, uh, footnotes, um, you know, with a lot of uh, information of research. So can you explain to us, how this immigration of Cape Verdean started to the United States? How did it start? I mean, oh. when did it start? How, yes. did it st- how did it start? And why did it start? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. So, all right. So you're, um, are, we, are we live now? Um, I'm not sure how we're doing this. So um, that, that I, question. I um, okay. Um, thank you. Um, well, Cape Verdeans um, have been a vital component of um, well, the, the, um, southern New England and to this country um, in, in particular um, since the second half of the 19th century when they left their drought-stricken archipelago Cape Verde Islands that had long been colonized by Portugal. And they came here initially as crew on whaling vessels. Um, and as Marcy um, uh, mentioned in her introduction, one of the reasons I think not just Cape Verdeans should know about this history, but all Americans should know about Cape Verdean um, immigrants is that they are even though they're not, they're not a population that's not well known outside of New England, these Afro-Portuguese settlers hold a unique place in the country's immigrant mosaic because they represented the first voluntary mass migration from Africa to the United States in American history. It's a big it's a big um, contribution to our history and culture. And they, um, they as I said, they um, came initially, it was actually young Cape Verdean men, mainly from the island of Brava, who, uh, because the Cape Verdean, uh, the um, New Bedford was the center for the whaling industry. And actually, the Bedford, Massachusetts, in the mid-19th century, because of whaling, was the richest city in the world. And um, whaling ships began to arrive at, at the Cape Verdean, um, at the, in the archipelago, especially in Brava, because Brava had, the island of Brava had these protected harbors. And they were looking for um, crew because the Yankee... Uh, seamen began to lose interest in whaling, and they were looking 
They came to the Cape Verde Islands initially to get supplies and salt. Um, and, and then they would pick up young men as crew on their whaling ships. And as I said, this was at the same time that the Cape Verde Islands was experiencing um, recurrent drought and high mortality and famine. So these young um, men were looking for any uh, potential escapes to more favorable conditions. And especially as the Yankee seamen began to lose interest in whaling, the, um, the Cape, uh, ship captains um, looked to the Cape Verde Islands in order to recruit hands who could be paid less money than their American counterparts. And um, the, the men were eager to obtain a berth on a whaler. And that was the start of it. Uh, and then Cape Verdean seamen earned a reputation as disciplined and able crews, and they were very much sought after, um, even though they weren't paid as well as was a whole other subject. Um, they were frequently subject to harsh treatment in the mariner's hierarchy because of discrimination based on race and ethnicity. But nonetheless, it, um, it was an entree to the uh, beginning of a more uh, mass migration in, by the late 19th century. And key to that migration and what brought even more Cape Verdeans and, and not, just, um, not just the men, but women and children and people of, um, of uh, different ages, um, because with the advent of steamship travel and the decline in the whaling and sealing industries, these old sailing vessels had become obsolete and they were available at a very low cost. And some of the early Cape Verdean migrants who were very entrepreneurial took advantage of this opportunity and they bought up these old um, Essex-built uh, whaling boats and they would pool their resources and convert them into cargo and passenger ships. And those were used as what were called packet boats that regularly um, sailed between the Cape Verde Islands and the ports of New Bedford, Massachusetts and Providence, Rhode Island. And actually, um, that, uh, with, through my research, I was able to um, name all of these packet boats and figure out who the captains were. And the very first uh, Cape Verdean American packet owner, um, he bought a 64-ton fishing schooner called the Nellie May. His name was Antonio Coelho. And in 1892, he set sail for Brava. He hired a former whaleman, another Cape Verdean, as the captain. And before long, Cape Verdean American settlers came to own a whole fleet of these vessels. So rather than all the other immigrants that were coming, the, the period of the first mass migration of Cape Verdean Americans or Cape Verdean immigrants to the United States was the period between 1880 and about 1930. And this was a big period of, of um, a big wave of migration of um, Italians and Polish and Jewish immigrants that came at the turn of the last century. 
And um, but they all came through Ellis Island. We 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 everybody I think knows about the immigration station at Ellis Island. But Cape Verdeans bypassed Ellis Island and they came directly from Brava, Fogo, Santa Claus, those are the main primary islands of the first wave, right into the port of New Bedford um, on, on Cape Verdean-owned ships. So in, in, a, in an, a situation unlike that of most immigrant groups, black or white or brown, Cape Verdeans came to have control over their own means of passage to this country. It's really remarkable and unique in, again, in American immigration history. Um, And so then, once the packet trade got underway, it greatly, it was a transatlantic system of support, and it greatly facilitated the newcomers' transition to the United States. They could bring their families there were, of course, there were instances, and I documented this too, of hazardous voyaging on the packet boats. But the fact that they were owned and operated by Cape Verdeans themselves really strengthened that chain between the islands and the American settlement. There is such a strong bond between the United States and the Cape Verde Islands. Um, and you know they were able to bring their instruments, and you know on the crossing they would be playing mornas and caladeras, and bring their traditional Creole food, and um, and and then they would um, and then they would arrive at the port of New Bedford, and and the other Cape Verdeans who were already here would come down to the harbor and greet them. And there was no having to stand in long lines in Ellis Island. And, and you know, it's very, um, very informal uh, as in terms of, uh, of arrival at, into this country. Um, uh, Marcy, is there anything? Yeah. Yes. Marcy, is there anything you would like to add on? Because, I mean, that was several pages. Obviously, but uh, is there anything <laughs> else you'd like to? I mean, you know, it's 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 for me. You use the word, you use the 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 term, Dr. Halter, remarkable, and um, remarkable it is. And you know, this is how my grandfather came over. This is how my ancestors came over here. And you know, reading this story, reading these stories, and seeing um, this history recounted in a scholarly work for me. Uh, was so empowering. And, you know, when we started this off, um, Louise, you had mentioned that you have a campaign to bring these books into the schools. I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I attended New Bedford Public Schools uh, throughout my entire um, education. And I wish that we had had this type of book to read when I was in school because it wasn't always easy as a Cape Verdean American growing up in New Bedford, there wasn't a lot of positive representations of our of of us. And you know, having if, if we had had this representation, and I believe there's a lot more positive representation in the city of New Bedford now because of the great work that the community has done to um, make sure that that history is presented as such. Um, you know, it would have instilled a certain amount of 
pride and, you know, just a, a real knowledge of the history and the hard work and the effort that it, you know, I read this book when it first came out and I had never been to Kabzid before. I went for the first time in 2005 and I knew that we were very resourceful people. I knew that we were enterprising people. I knew that we were entrepreneurial, but it wasn't until I actually arrived on the soil and I saw the landscape and I saw the incredible amount of effort that it takes to get things done there. You know, seeing a woman scaling the side of a mountain with all of her supplies on her head, um, you know, it, it just occurred to me, it really all crystallized everything that I had read in the book, everything that I knew and felt and had seen in my own family, you know, how hardworking we are, how enterprising we are, um, and how incredibly um, adventurous, courageous, how courageous we are to take this, to take that journey, to, you know, purchase our own ship to make that journey across the Atlantic Ocean, I saw that reflected back to me when I actually arrived in Kabzid and I saw what life was like there. And then it all made sense. And for the first time in my life, I actually really understood not only who I was, but also who my ancestors were and who, who we were as a people. But my very first sort of inkling of that beyond just my familial you know, raising and being around my family and my culture was seeing that reflected back to me in Dr. Halter's work. So seeing it all come together is something that I believe that um, children would greatly benefit from as part of their academic work and their schooling in public schools. Well, one thing that uh, one thing that I would like to add is uh and obviously the book is going to go into further detail but to understand first of all um uh young men that were taking on that challenge to in the going into the whaling business i mean they were they were performing some of the the worst of those aspects it's a very dangerous job but they were mm-hmm. actually doing some of the, the the worst part of it but they still did it and then when the whaling industry, which was a, a tremendous booming industry, I mean, completely died out uh, or ended, it had a tremendous impact, not just on people directly but indirectly. But then to see those people that were, those Cape Verdeans that were involved in those, uh, in, in the ships, then having the, having the idea, the ingenuity of taking those ships, the wheeling ships, converting it into cargo passenger ships, and then using that opportunity to go back and forth. I mean, they they used to make so many trips that Cape Verdeans became seasonal workers. I mean, to me, that's mind-blowing to, to, to actually understand mm-hmm. that. But Dr. Halter, can you touch on the impact of that um, – uh, of the immigration law change that happened, I believe it was under President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, in in 1929. Was it 29 or 1930? 29-30? What, what happened yeah, at that well, time, and what impact what impact did it have on the immigration for Cape Verdean specifically? Right, right. Um, 
so yeah, in the early nineteen, um, really in the after World War One, in the late like starting in nineteen seventeen and right down to uh, nineteen twenty four, w- the country there was a a, um, a backlash, an anti-immigrant movement, much like we're uh, experiencing today. Um, in fact, when I look at some of the rhetoric. Um, that is about immigrants today, immigrants that are less desirable by um, the current, um, I don't want to get too political, (laughs) the current uh, outlook, Um, some of the same language. And it wasn't necessarily directed at Cape Verdeans. It was directed at all the Southern and Eastern European um, immigrants and arrivals from China, at, you know, in, in this period, but they did pass very strict immigration laws that pretty much closed the door to um, immigration. So, uh, except that for um, well, into the uh, early 1930s, and then we had um, such a, a, a steep uh, economic depression that nobody was immigrating anyway, even if there weren't um, there weren't laws in place to prevent it. So you had still you still had some packet boats coming after 1924, but pretty much between um, between ni- the mid 1920s until 1965, when uh, under the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. They opened the doors up again to immigration. You really didn't, that was sort of uh, the end of the packet trade, and it was the end of uh, migration for this first wave of Cape Verdean immigrants. But by then, Luis, they had um, uh, not only established, um, you know, a, a, a community, but they took they were they were so enterprising that they um you know there they they started their own uh the church and um and um the traditions from the Cape Verde Islands uh were were celebrated so that uh that various uh holidays um and um and you know, businesses were opened up and the other um, area that that Cape Verdeans really made their mark. Uh, you mentioned, you know, this, that that the um, the whalers and the packet boats went back and forth because of seasonal labor. At the same time that the the um, the whalers, the Cape Verdean whalemen and their families were settling in New Bedford. Uh, it was when there were uh, cheap uh, sources of labor were being sought for the expanding textile mills on the cranberry bogs and in maritime related occupations. So when the, um, when whaling was, was no longer um, uh, uh, lucrative and when uh, more and more Cape Verdeans were settling in the um, southeastern New England, especially the New Bedford and Providence area, and they needed to find jobs. And because of, of discrimination, 
the textile mills, which were thriving in this period, tended to not hire um, Cape Verdeans except for as custodial workers. They were, they were kind of the lowest rung. So what they did was they picked cranberries in, um, in the autumn, and, um, and um, they, they became, um, you know, it, it was a source of income. And again, the more enterprising Cape Verdeans actually bought up um, some of these uh, bog lands and became owners of cranberry bogs. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't a lot of people um, proportionately, but again, it was, these were former peasants um, who were able to work the land again and able to, in some cases, buy that land and, and uh, work on their own uh, property as, as, um, as agricultural workers. So, um, and then it, they also worked a lot in uh, maritime-related jobs as, um, as longshoremen um, and uh, other kinds of, uh, of dock work. Uh, in, in the New Bedford, uh, southeastern Massachusetts area. <clears throat> Marcy, is there, uh, can, you, um, can you add a little bit about the, uh, what you may know about or share with us, some of the experience? Because the book uh, touches on it in detail, but what can you share with us about the experience that that generation of Cape Verdeans that started, uh, a lot of them did work, in the in the uh, cranberry industry, primarily in the the picking of the cranberry, what can you share with us about the the hardship of that type of a uh, uh, of manual labor, and you know anything else that you could add because that was a part of the book that really um, along with the making of Caverdian, those two books go along really well together. That really um, you know got my attention. It got my attention. Gave me a lot of uh, it humbled me a lot, it, you know, not that I'm an arrogant person, but it really, really humbled me to understand, you know, how it was back then. And sometimes you, you look at your uh, some of the difficulties and um, inconveniences that you may have today and blow it out of proportion because if we understand what uh, some of our uh, progenitors, ancestors went through, I mean, what we do, what we have today, I mean, it's it's nothing in comparison what what can you add on? What can you tell us about um, that experience? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think it's really easy to forget, especially as uh, people that are from that generation have, you know, are now our ancestors. Not, not There's not um, a lot of those people have passed on. So it's easy for people to forget about those experiences and the hardships that Cape Verdeans endured here and the ways in which and the work that they had to do just to simply survive not only survive but as you're surviving here in the united states you're oftentimes sending money and supplies back home to cup vid so you're providing for yourself here in america you're trying to bring your family over here you're sending money back home that's you know allowing people to survive in cup vid it was a lot of pressure and the working conditions were horrible i have a friend that um we actually sat down with his great aunt um, who was, she worked on the cranberry bogs in, in Cape Cod and she actually worked for Ocean Spray um, for many, many years. 
And she talks about the conditions and how horrendous it was that they lived in this one room shack that had no heat in it. And they would be picking these cranberries all day long. Their arm, you know, their arms and their fingers would be frozen. Their feet would be frozen. Their knees would hurt. They would be bloody. And they, you know, just had to keep on working. Um, There would be times where they didn't get their pay on time. You know, it wasn't an easy time. She shuddered at Mm -hmm. one point. She actually shuddered as she was recounting some of the memories. And she was not an adult when she was doing this work. She was a child. So she was actually Mm -hmm. a child laborer. And these were experiences that stood with her for the rest of her life. And when you hear the sacrifices that, you know, our ancestors, that these people made for us, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, my last trip when I was in New Bedford, I, um, and this was during the quarantine, I found myself sort of just driving around and looking at some of the places um, that have, that were really important to me when I was growing up and that in college education, places like that, because I received scholarships from these organizations, places like the Bisca Club and the Cape Verdean Vets Hall and the Band Club, places that were really the cultural institutions of Cape Verdeans in the area, places that were extremely important as a support system, um, not only for places of recreation where people could go and eat and dance and, and have fun and, you know, play music, but also as support systems that if there was, you know, if somebody had passed away, they would help collect money and, um, you know, collectively financially support a family through a funeral. Um, if a family was, you know, had a family member that was coming over, they would help to support them. You know, people really banded together during that time to support one another in ways that I think, I think are actually disappearing. And as I walked around or actually drove around, I took photos of all of these places because a few of them are closed. Um, some mm-hmm. of them are really, they're on the verge of closing. And this, this, this is our history. This is our culture. This has been the way that Cape Verdeans have survived by supporting one another and to see those places, um, you know, demolished, demo, you know, I shouldn't say decaying, um, on the verge of demolishing, um, not being able to be financially sustainable, forgotten. I mean, that history in so many ways is being forgotten. And as a Cape Verdean American, it hurts because we need each other now more than ever. I think, you know, Dr. Halter talked about, um, you know, the political climate, and I also don't want to get too political, but uh, between the pandemic that we're facing right now and the economic fallout that's going to happen from that, not just in the United States, but globally, you know, leaning on each other is going to be incredibly important. That's something that Cape Verdeans were always really good at. And I wonder what that's going to look like in the future, because in a lot of ways, we've forgotten our history and we've forgotten our traditions. And that to me is such an important thread of our culture that's necessary for survival. So when I hear these stories, I just don't want the sacrifice that these people made to be in vain. Um, That's not an easy journey to leave behind everything you know, because you can't survive in your own country. You leave your family, you leave your uh, behind your traditions, your language, um, your entire way of life, and you come to another place where you face face additional hardships, where you face racism, where you face discrimination, where you you know have to start at the very very bottom. But even that was an opportunity to live in a better way than was possible to live in Cabo Verde at those moments. 
and to see people, um, you know, where we are right now, not necessarily understanding that history, I think sometimes um, doesn't really allow for that strong cultural connection that's so, so important, not only for survival, but really just to knowing who you are. I think when you know where you came, came from and you know who you are, moving forward, you move forward with purpose. You move forward with a real sense of pride because you know that you're standing on the shoulders of your ancestors and they've sacrificed so much for you that you in turn want to make sure that you make your family and your culture proud of who you are and proud of your contributions to this country and to the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the the time going by, and now I'm, you know, I I, I got to move a, li- a little bit faster because I want to be respectful of both of your time. But I I, I told you this, Doctor uh, Halter. Once once we start, it's it, once we get in it, it gets so time goes by so fast because the information is so yeah. is, is so important. But um, a little bit on. Um, because New Bedford is a very, very, very important city when it comes to the history of Cape Verdeans in the United States. And I think we have some sort of an amnesia where, because for the past few decades, Boston, now Brockton, and we tend to really forget about New Bedford, which had almost a, a run of about 100 years, where I think in your book you stated something like 90% of all the Im- immigrants came through the port of New Bedford and some the the left the, the rest uh, to uh, Providence, but can you explain to us um, the, the the dynamic and the and the community that that was created in New Bedford, and, and maybe touch a little bit on the the complexities of it because it was pretty complex because you had Caverdians at the time still looking at themselves as Portuguese, but then the Portuguese uh, from Azores and Madeira and some from the mainland, which was greater in number, not really accepting the Cape Verdeans, but then you have the other dynamics of, uh, um, of, of the native uh, uh, blacks or what we would say African-Americans uh, also living there, but seeing themselves, uh, seeing themselves as a unique people, but not black. I mean, that, when I got to that point, I thought that was so fascinating. It was so complex. It was, it was almost like you had to peel it layer by layer to really understand it, not to really cast blames because there is reasons why that happened, but uh, as much as you can, because obviously the book does the justice, but as much as you can, can you, so people, when they hear it, they could really get more excited about getting to that part of the book and better understand it because that that's also part of your book, which touches on the the dynamic of the race and the ethnicity. Exactly. Yes. I mean, the the title is between race and ethnicity, and I, I, um, you know, you, uh, it's a it's a big subject, and as you said, it's very complex. But um, I just want to before I sort of get into the kind of intricacies of that. Um, when you when you mentioned or when you asked me to um, to uh, explain how, how close New Bedford is or what rep- New Bedford represents, I mean I see it as the real hub of of the Cape Verdean community, the historic um, 
place uh, that was the founding of the, of the community, of, of the greater community. And I think I was just remembering um, that um, when the president of, of Cape Verde at the time, he, he visited New Bedford in uh, 2002, but New Bedford is the only place in the country where, because uh, July 5th is Cape Verdean Independence Day, um, it's the only place in the country that there, the July 4th, the American Independence Day, is celebrated with a Cape Verdean parade. Um, and that the July 4th parade in New Bedford is a Cape Verdean parade. And it's called the Independence Day Recognition um, uh, Parade. And I, I encourage anybody who has either never visited um, New Bedford but lives close by, I, I don't know what's going to happen this year because of sheltering protocols and all that, maybe it won't happen, but in future years, it's, it's just a wonderful experience, even for people like me who aren't Cape Verdean. Maybe I'm honorary by now, but um, so um, they, in 2002, um, the president was served as the Grand Marshal, and there was a reception that w welcomed him to the city. That was before the parade and, and that, mor that morning. And it was held at the Whaling Museum. And it was uh, President Pires, uh, Pires uh, first point, what he did before he even said anything, is he pointed to this imposing uh, blue whale skeleton that, that the museum has hanging overhead in their largest um, uh, room and uh, exposition room. And he, took, he pointed to the whale and he thanked the whale for what it had done for Cape Verdeans, saying, the whale is the animal that connects New Bedford to Cape Verde. So it was like a key global, globalizing force. I mean, now, you know, hunting whales is a, a really bad thing to do. But at the time, it, it so... Uh, boosted the local economy, and it's the reason Cape Verdeans ended up in New Bedford. Um, but as you say, their their settlement here um, was was fraught because Cape Verdean settlers brought with them a very distinctive cultural identity, and they they migrated freely. As I said, they didn't come in chains; they came of their own volition. They came to New Bedford and to New England as Portuguese colonials. The, the Cape Verde Islands had been colonized by Portugal since the mid-15th century. And when they came in the mid-19th to late 19th century, they were considered to be Portuguese. So they initially defined themselves in terms of ethnicity. Portuguese is an ethnic identity. But because of their mixed African and European ancestry, they were looked upon as and treated as an inferior racial group. Um, so they sought recognition as Portuguese Americans, um, which is, you know, and, and, and it's part of quote unquote white society. Um, but the 
even other Portuguese immigrants from the Azores and from Madeira and from mainland Portugal, who were also immigrating at the same time, they excluded them from their social and religious associations. So Cape Verdeans suffered, um, you know, they, they suffered discrimination in that realm, in, in housing, in employment. But at the same time, as you also mentioned, Louise, um, they chose not to identify with African Americans. And it's kind of, it's not surprising. And there were actually, not only was there a, a local African American population, but there were uh, immigrants from the West Indies, from Jamaica and Barbados, who had also settled in New Bedford. And, but Cape Verdeans at the time, and now we have large numbers who are, um, who are Protestant, but at that time, about, I would say, 90% of all Cape Verdeans who immigrated in that first wave were Catholic. And so their Catholicism tended to keep them apart from the primarily Protestant African-American and West Indian population. But also, they quickly perceived the adverse effects of racism on the upward mobility of anyone considered non-white in this country. So really what they wanted to do is just be recognized as Cape Verdean. <laughs> and, um, and, and to me, that's a very viable uh, desire. I mean, we have this peculiar idea in this country that if you're white, you have an ethnicity. So if you're of European heritage, you can be Irish or Italian or Polish. But if you're black or mixed-race ancestry, the definition is based on skin color alone. But there's as much ethnic uh, diversity among people of color as there are among so-called white people. I mean, if you're of color, you can be Cape Verdean, Haitian, Jamaican, Ethiopian. I mean, it just goes... It's, it, so it, to me, I like to say that racism is real, but races are not. So that bind, that, that, that um, being sort of stuck between wanting to identify as Caverdians in terms of their ethnicity, but being forced into these racial category, uh, the non-white racial, racial category, by other members of the community and by the infrastructure was a really tough road to traverse. Yeah, I actually... I could um, go I on. Like <laughs> I could go yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to add yes, to that because yes, Mark, I think please, what you're that. saying is it's, it's right on point. I mean, you know, Cabertians, um, we have an experience that is not necessarily, you know, again, we, we occupy this very interesting sort of in-between space. Um, we, like African-Americans and other um, African people that are in the Americas, whether you're from Jamaica or Brazil or wherever, we, um, we were taken from the continent and brought to Kabzir. So our experience and our racial makeup is more in alignment with people who also come from this history of being enslaved. That's our ethnic, I mean, that's our ethnic makeup, right? Is more in, in alignment with that. But yet, of course, during the time pre-1975, 
Cape Verdeans were considered Portuguese, and I can definitely understand why coming, you know, arriving in the United States and seeing how poorly African Americans are being treated, that we would not want to align with that. And then also there's the cultural differences, right? We speak a different language, we come from a different place, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I also think, and, and that establishment of Cape Verdean identity being distinct is very real. So my birth certificate, my birth certificate, for example, says that I'm Cape Verdean. That it actually says that on my birth certificate, and that is something that Cape Verdeans in America fought for. We fought to have that distinct ethnic identification be recognized, and I think that's very different from a lot of other people, and specifically from African Americans. But if you look at Cape Verdeans in the United States, post-1975 and even prior to 1975, during the civil rights movement, Cape Verdeans in America had to make a choice. They really did. What side are you on? Because in that moment where the tensions were so high and there was so much going on and so much at stake, a lot of Cape Verdeans that were born in the U.S., first-generation American, could no longer continue to say that they were Portuguese because they didn't look Portuguese. They couldn't pass as white. They were clearly not white. So that's when you start to see um, a a joining of Cape Verdean Americans with African Americans in the civil rights movement and the civil rights fight. And in this case of New Bedford in particular, you saw many Cape Verdean people, not just in New Bedford, but in Boston as well, that joined the Black Panther Party and that were part of that whole movement mm-hmm. and became Black nationalists and really fought for Cape Verdeans to understand that we are African and that this is part of who we are and that we cannot afford to separate ourselves, but rather we have to put in, all, we all have to join in together in the fight for civil rights and for justice in the United States. And I think post-1975, Cape Verdeans in Cabvid also see ethnicity differently. Yes, we are mixed. We have a lot of different mixtures, but we all know that post-1975, a lot of the people who were not of African descent left Habdid and went back to their countries of origin or other places. And as a result of that, the population has gotten significantly darker. And if you're in certain places in Habdid, you have people that are darker. So I think post-1975, Cape Verdeans um, much there was a there was a much uh, stronger identification with an African identity as opposed to a European identity. But I think all in all, I think most of us understand that we are Creole people, and Creole means mixed. We are of mixed mm-hmm. races. We have so much, and like Kachupa that has all these things mixed in. That's what makes us so special. That's what makes us so unique. And I think that that also makes us a connector and a bridge between many different cultural, many different cultures and many different um, types of people, not only historically, but even today. So well said, yes. Marcy. You, yes. Thank you. Uh, I want to, I would like uh, Marcy or Dr. Halter, if uh, either one of you would care to just uh, add on a little bit, because on the book too, uh, and I hope I'm not mixing both of the, the books because I read them one after the other. But I, as I mentioned, they all they go so well together. Uh, and I also uh, got to understand, and I really it wasn't clear to me, but I got to understand that the aspects of colorism within the Cape Verdean community. Uh, it seemed like in New Bedford, Cape Verde was really tight knit. Uh, in, uh, uh, when it comes to it, it was almost like uh, the 
there was a self-imposed segregation between the Cape Verdeans, the, uh, the, the black uh, Americans, the Portuguese, and everyone kind of was protective uh, amongst each other, and they were very, you know, tight-knit. And the, but within the Cape Verdean community, it was also a dynamic of colorism. And a lot of times it would be, you would have, obviously you have situations with siblings. One could be very light-skinned, the other darker-skinned. There were situations with grandparents and grandson and stuff like that. Can you touch a little bit on, on that dynamic and, and what kind of helped uh, address that or make it a better situation? Because I have an impre- it left me with an impression that that was also one of the uh, complexities that, uh, that existed uh, within the Cape Verdean communities, uh, specifically, especially in, in New Bedford. Um, Marcy, I don't know if you want to speak to that. Um, yeah, we don't have oh, to sorry. go into too many details, just, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, because that's part of where we were, uh, of the race the and the I aspect did, of did it. Say, the one thing I did want to say is I don't think it was especially in New Bedford. I think it's because in that period when, um, before sort of, multiracial or mixed race identities were more uh, prevalent and more accepted and like the post um, in the, you know, beginning in the 1980s. So if we're going back to the earlier part of the, um, of the 20th century where that's where most Cape Verdeans were, they were in New Bedford. So I don't think it was a particular, the colorism as it played out, uh, was had anything to do with necessarily being in New Bedford. But you know, maybe Marcy, you have a um, uh, you might want to to add to that. I mean, I can say that from my own my own experience. I think that just Cape Verdeans in general. I think that there's just there is a lot of um, the, the the way that Cape Verdeans in Cabo look at race and the way that Americans look at race is very different. In the United mm. States, it doesn't matter how light skinned you are. If you are of black descent, you are black. It doesn't matter if you have one parent that's black or you have a grandparent that's black. You, if you, the one drop rule exists. If, you know, the law was if you were one sixteenth black, you were black, and that has played out in terms of the way that people are viewed and the way that people see themselves. Where in Kabzid, I think it's more about how you look. If you're dark skinned, I mean, how many people do you know? They're dark skinned. Oh, they press them. You know, they they call them black they. You know, um, when I went to, I'm light skinned. When I went to Kabzid for the first time, I was so confused because. I grew up in America where I was considered black, and now I arrive in Cabrera, and they call me Portuguesa or Branquinha, and I'm like, wait a minute, why is everybody calling me white? Why are they calling me Portuguese? It was very confusing for me as somebody who mm-hmm. was raised mm-hmm. with an American sensibility, an American codification of what it means to be black, and I think that there is um, there's a conflict there in terms of the way that race is viewed in these two different nations. And I think for Cape Verdeans in America, very quickly you had to get with the program that you, you're hard pressed to find any Cape Verdean American who was born in the United States and was raised in the United States that doesn't see themselves as being black. Whereas a Cape Verdean that has come from Cabo if they're very light skinned, 
they might not necessarily identify themselves as being black. African, yes, but not necessarily black, and maybe not African-American. There still might be the desire to distinguish from being a black American versus a Cape Verdean American because culturally there's a difference there. And Cape Verdeans don't always want to be identified with the culture of African-Americans. You know, we see that our culture is different and um, maybe don't like some of the things that are seen in African-American culture. But when you live in the United States, you don't have the luxury. You're not afforded the opportunity to pick your race in the United States. It doesn't work that way here. You, if you are, if you have, if you are of black descent, you are black, and I think that that's very, 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 very different. And I think that for Cape Verdeans, when they come to the United States, I think that's a little jarring. And I think particularly when you look at um, people from New Bedford, a lot of the people that came over from Brava, there were were a lot more light skinned people, and they had to adjust. They had to adjust. I know many people, family members, friends. And people that have talked about this over the years, that they were so perplexed that they were seen as a certain way that they didn't necessarily see themselves. And that's an adjustment that had to be made. So I do think that, you know, our identity has always been, you know, are we African? Are we European? Then you come to the United States. Are you white? Are you black? I think that that's something that Cape Verdeans, we've always been contending with. And some of it is in fact about your phenotype and your actual color. And some of it is rooted in a lot of brainwashing and a lot of ideas about what makes you better and what is not. Like you said, you can have family members where one child is light skinned and may even have blonde hair and green eyes, really curly hair. The other family member is dark skinned. It's very hard to separate when it comes to us. But if you look at African-American families, you actually find similar patterns because that's what happens when you're mixed race it you children can come out in many different ways i have to say uh, I, uh, that um, yes, uh, i just wanted to add to that um mm-hmm. that my whether i would be whether the interviews i conducted with the first wave of immigrants way back when or more recent the the legacy of of both colonialism and creolization has made um, issues of identity. I don't think there was a single interview that I've ever done with a Cape Verdean American, if if, if it was a well done interview, where issues of uh, questions of identity weren't raised. And, and, you know, it could could have been the experience a century ago, or you could talk to a a Cape Verdean today, and they are still wrestling with these very fundamental issues of, you know, how how to fit in and um, what what, um, what these identity concerns are just very paramount in the narratives and life stories of of the Cape Verdean diaspora. And I think Marcy's um, so on target to um, compare the Cape Verdean um, self-identity issues in the Cape Verde Islands as opposed to the United States. And if you were to interview people, um, there's a sizable Cape Verdean population in the Netherlands and in Brazil, and not, not to mention mainland Portugal, and you 
all these percolating issues of what is my ethnicity, what is my race, um, issues of colorism, as you mentioned, Louise, um, just seem to be on, on the uh, forefront of, of the discussion. I would like to transition a little bit just so you could touch a little bit on Cape Cod. Uh, today we look at Cape Cod as a very affluent uh, region of Massachusetts, um, uh, an area where we don't think Cape Verdeans when we say Cape Cod, but the recent history uh, tells us otherwise, and your book actually documents that, uh, that especially um, where Cape Verdeans at the time uh, a lot of them lived in Cape Cod, and because the mentality was always to send money back home or because they were seasonal workers, many of them did not think long-term that they will actually live there, and a great opportunity was missed where today maybe a, a big portion of Cape Cod could have been descendants of these, uh, of these Cape Verdeans. But can you touch on the connection between the Cape Verdean immigrants the first and second generation, at least, and Cape Cod specifically, and also if you could touch a little bit on on, on the the labor aspect, because I believe on your on your book you talk about some some incidents of a labor manner that actually triggered. Um, I think it was um, uh, one of those labor disputes. Yeah. One of those first. Yeah. One of, uh, yeah. I'm um, sorry. Go, go ahead. So I, I was, could, yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, but when we were talking earlier about the uh, cranberry bogs, picking cranberries, um, and Marcy uh, discussed very eloquently the injustices of child labor and the poor working conditions, um, I wanted to um, interject. Uh, very recently, I was uh, talking with uh, my sister-in-law, Marcy, your Aunt Judy, and um, in addition to picking cranberries, which was seasonal work, um, the Cape Verdeans also pick strawberries. So cranberries are harvested in the fall, September, and October, and strawberries in uh, June. And so uh, families um, would um, uh, I just lost power on my earbud, so I'm going to uh, switch over here. Um, can you can you still hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, yes, okay. you're okay. Oh, okay. Um, and all right. Um, so. Um, with families would go from people who lived in New Bedford and some some of, of the uh, Cape Verdean um, Cape Verdean settled in Wareham, so the, sort of the start of the um, the Upper Cape, and um, then they would go to Falmouth to pick strawberries. And uh, when my sister-in-law, she just told this recent story that. The whole, her grandmother would pile all the kids in the car and they'd go down. They had another relative who had a small house where they could all stay during to pick cranberries. And when she was five years old, she was out there picking um, strawberries. I'm sorry, not cranberries. This was the strawberry picking. And she had a little pouch 
and she had where she could um, she she would put get get a ticket for the, all the, the basket of strawberries that she would pick, and that ticket she could turn in for, for enough money to buy her school shoes because she was starting ki- uh, kindergarten that fall, and that was the only way she could have um, school shoes. Uh, to begin uh, to begin school, so that was one thing that brought the the Cape Verdean community to the Falmouth area was for strawberry picking. That was the, wasn't the only thing, but um, most of the Cape Verdeans who settled on the Cape were either in Falmouth or in the Wareham Rochester area, and as I as I mentioned. Um, they they would be there for cranberry picking, but that some lived year, year round. And in the 19, early 1930s, even though Cape Verdean immigrants were not really known for their labor activism, uh, by the early 1930s, like so many other American workers, that was the beginning of the Great Depression. Um, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with low wages and really abysmal job conditions. And so Cape Verdeans in 1993, 1,500 cranberry pickers went on strike. They joined the rank and file in both agricultural and maritime organizing, but this was, this was the agricultural work. And they demanded a rise in wages, guaranteed employment, um, until the end of the season because they could be, you know, just um, fired. You know, they wanted to, the recognition of their right to unionize. And even though it wasn't a particularly uh, successful strike effort, they did in some cases um, get higher wages for individual bogs. But more importantly, again, uh, there's so many firsts and unique um, aspects to Cape Verdean American history, but this was the first strike by agricultural workers in the history of Massachusetts, and as well as the only labor dispute that involved primarily Cape Verdean immigrants. So um, it's another piece of the history that I think Cape Verdeans can be very proud of. Uh, Marcy, anything you want to add to that? I thought that part of the uh, the book was very, very interesting to hear about. The, and I think that happened in Carver, correct, in the town of Carver? Yes, it was around Carver, yes. I didn't mention Carver. So Wareham and Rochester and Carver are all adjacent, more rural um, areas than, of course, New Bedford and Providence. Um, but, yes. That that the strike was uh, primarily the bogs in um, Carver and also Marion and Mattapoisett, Massachusetts. Right, right. And, and there were there were still communities or Verdians in decent, respectful numbers numbers in Hyannis. Uh, many of them worked as uh, as maids or worked for the wealthier folks. Uh, and so forth. Yeah, uh, I believe I, I got that from your book. Yes, and and for uh, as I mentioned, after whaling was no longer an option, uh, when the whaling industry closed down entirely, um, 
Cape Verdean men often worked um, in, in these uh, dockside occupations or maritime related. They weren't fishermen. The, the Azorean Portuguese owned the, the fishing boats, but they, the men would serve as cooks on, um, on the fishing vessels and other, merit, uh, other, um, other uh, ships and boats. And they're, they're, they became really good chefs. <laughs> um, but the women often worked, um, when they weren't picking cranberries, as, as maids. As um, my mother-in-law was a housekeeper, um, Marcy's grandmother. <laughs> and, uh, and it was for wealthier families on Cape Cod and, uh, and Fairhaven, Mattapoisett. Marion, the, the, the towns leading to Cape Cod on Buzzards Bay. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Marcy? I mean, I just wanted to add that the legacy of all of those people is still there. I mean, there's definitely pockets of Cape Verdean communities and all the places that you've mentioned, Hyannis, Carver, um, uh, Wareham, Mattapoisett, um, that whole area on set. And one of the ways that we can still see that today is with the presence of the Onset Cape Verdean Festival, which still is one of, the, I think, one of the, the, um, the great festivals that happen celebrating Cape Verdean culture every, every summer. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and I've had the privilege to attend a few of them. And now, um, hopefully, once things get back to normal, we can, um, I plan to bring my daughter as well and, but really do it like a couple of years ago, I took her to the um, the Providence one, uh, Indian Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was there, and there was a lot of people sitting down, and I started explaining to my daughter. And basically, um, I believe, Marcy, you had a, an interview about that, I think, uh, but also from the documentary from Miss um, uh, Andrade, Claire. Uh, Professor uh, uh, Claire Andrade, and um, and I was just talking to her and explaining to her, and a few people started, you know, listening and you know just you know looking at me weird and everything. But it's amazing how a lot of people are in you know very historical places, but have absolutely no idea what's going on there. They're just there for the party, and I think it's a very uh, you know, you know, it's just like amnesia. You're in a place like you have no remembrance of anything. And, and, and that's why I think the book, just the appendix and index alone is worth the price of the book. But um, when, you get, when you get deep into the stories, it gets even, uh, even better. Uh, so, again, it's, you know, it, it, it's um, really... It's not yes, surprising please. to me that people don't, know this history because when you look at uh, the history of Fox Point, urban renewal just wiped that entire neighborhood off the map. Uh, so we don't even have the, the physical landscape, the, or the actual built environment to remind us. As, um, and as, as Marcy mentioned in her recent drive around New Bedford, you know, more and more uh, sites, buildings, uh, places that have so much rich Cape Verdean history as a part of 
of what happened there is disappearing. Yeah, that's why I think it's so important uh, yeah, for us. I, I, that, that, yes, Mark. I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead Louise. No, I was going to say, I just think that this is why, you know, these types of conversations, um, the work that Dr. Halter has done, I, I think that this is why these things are so important because we we can't afford to forget this history. This history is crucial. It marks our contributions to this, not only the area, but also to the country. And it's really important that we continue to carry on the legacy and tell these stories because if we're not telling them, they're going to disappear. Mm. Yeah, you know, Cape absolutely. Cape Verdeans are getting absorbed into the, you know, just becoming just American. Um, over the years, Cape Verdeans just become American as opposed to, just, you know, being Cape Verdean American. A lot of people intermarry, um, you know, and culture gets, sort of lost along the way from sometimes. So I think that's why it's really important to acknowledge these things. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was going to uh, transition because it appears to me that uh, after World War II, that's when a lot of Cape Verdeans, and you had a, another generation coming up, when the, a lot of Cape Verdeans were actually introduced to uh, you know, to the uh, American society in general outside of the uh, New Bedford uh, cocoon, I guess you could say, because a lot of them stayed in the area. Maybe they would go to the Cape and visit family members. But a lot of Cape Verdeans, I have the impression they kind of stuck in the community. And that's why a lot of that uh, culture and language and was preserved. But then the new mm. generation having to, to uh, join the, the military, and I think at the time there was the draft, and that's when they really was introduced to, okay, racism in general, how it's set up and uh, dealing with different culture and the perspective uh, of their mind, the, the, the thinking became more, uh, became greater and broader as opposed to just that, that uh, dynamic that was happening in places like uh, – uh, New Bedford specifically, where the majority of the people used to live. Can you touch a little bit on that and maybe set me straight if I'm getting a little bit uh, not a no, clear I picture? But I, I thought I thought World War II was very very important in the, the makeup of this uh, of the converting people. Yes, absolutely. No, Louise, you got it. You got it just right on target. Uh, and it was a real turning point uh, for this especially for this generation of Cape Verdean American men who were of the age where they could enlist in the armed forces during World War II. It wasn't even a draft. It was, it was um, you know, everybody wanted to, to volunteer to be part of protecting our um, American d democracy. And, um, but it brought out a whole new set of identity issues because Joining the military meant a first kind of step out of this, as you described, protective shelter of their local communities in southern New England. And it brought them face-to-face -face with the existence of segregated troops because they could be, you know, they could be sent to boot camp in the south or, you know, Texas, wherever. Um, California is a different set of, of um racial dynamics at that time, but it brought them face-to-face -face with the existence, um, as I said, of a wider society that did not 
know or care about the ethnic identity of a Cape Verdean. So, and, and troops were still segregated at that time. So most of these young men were sent to black regiments where they were forced to deal directly with racism. Um, and then some were assigned to white units and where they weren't accepted there either. <laughs> so um, for those especially stationed with white troops in the southern states, you can imagine how painful that was to come to terms with um, the ambiguity, ambiguity of their own ethnic background and the rigid racial barriers of their surroundings. And what, yeah. So um, that was the beginning of um, ex more exposure to the wider society and um, especially and within, within the uh, shelter of, of the um, New Bedford, Providence, Wareham, you know, Carver, Southeastern New England, there were, you know, complications, but over the years, uh, people began to recognize who Cape Verdeans were. You didn't have to always explain yourself. But once outside those, uh, that region, it, it was, a, a, you know, a, people faced an indifferent, often hostile world um, that w didn't have room for um, for subtleties of ethnic or racial identity. Marcy, when I, I, I'm assuming that you're going to uh, jump in. We don't have a lot of time, but, uh, you know, anything else that uh, you want to add to that? I mean, I can add beyond World War II, I can, I can definitely say that as Cape Verdeans have spread out mm -hmm. beyond the borders of our, uh, you know, 11th island over here in New England, whether <laughs> we're in Providence or Brockton or Boston or New Bedford, you know, where we have uh, an established community and people do know who we are. Um, you know, my first, I, not just me, many Cape Verdeans that I've talked to, I live in New Jersey, I live in Newark, and I live right outside of New York City. When I first moved out out of uh, the area, I moved to New York, and um, I, I encountered quite a few Cape Verdeans. There is a small Cape Verdean community uh, in the area, and I've encountered Cape Verdeans along the way that have, you know, moved to New York City to make their careers in New York. And it definitely, uh, definitely was strange. You know, it definitely took some getting used to 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 the question of what are you, what are you, you know, where do you come from. Um, and having to break it down, oh, I'm Cape Verdean. Oh, Cape Town, South Africa. You know, people just automatically thought, they, they look at, oh, it's Cape Verde. Oh, it's in Africa. Oh, Cape Town, South Africa. No, Cape Verde, you know, and you have to break it down. People would automatically just assume that you were Puerto Rican or Dominican or I used to actually have fun with it and ask people, I'd play the game and ask people to guess where I'm from because it was pretty funny to me to see all the different things that would come up. Um, but I think, you know, moving outside of the area really it confronted me, again, with my identity, much like Dr. Halter said that happened in World War II. And that's not just my own experience. All the Cape Verdeans that I know that live in the area feel the same way. And in a lot of ways, it reinforced the pride that I feel as a Cape Verdean, and it reinforced the importance of 
my my um my duty to really represent the culture and to hold on to the culture. You know, I did not grow up speaking Creole. I'm, I, you know, I was born here. Um, my father was born here. I didn't grow up speaking the language. Um, people in my family speak the language. My grandparents spoke it, but they didn't really teach it to us. In fact, they would use, they would speak Creole when they didn't want us to know what they were talking about. It wasn't, you know, something that they taught us. I think in a lot of ways they wanted us to be American and, and to blend in an American culture. So, Moving outside of the area actually really, in a lot of ways, reconnected me to my Cape Verdean and identity in a very intentional way, whereas prior to moving away from New Bedford, I just was like, yeah, I'm proud to be Cape Verdean, I'm Cape Verdean, but I almost took it for granted. I didn't necessarily know what that meant, and moving away took me on an entire journey, which really changed my life in a lot of ways and changed my career because then Cape Verdean music, Cape Verdean culture and history became a point that I wanted to share with the world because I knew how unique and special it was. I learned the language. I went to Kabzid. I, you know, made my entire career in music focused on Cape Verdean music and Cape Verdean culture. And that was something that I did at first because I, I had to know more about my culture in order to explain to people where I was from and what, you know, what my culture was. So I think that's the experience of a lot of Cape Verdean Americans who were raised here and moved away. And then Cape Verdeans that came from Cabrera and immigrated to other areas outside of, uh, you know, the New England area certainly are also confronted with that too and having to constantly explain. But I do think that in a lot of ways that just sort of reinforces for us how strong our cultural identity is beyond just, hey, I'm proud to be Cape Verdean, but really understanding what that is and, you know, how much our people have um, struggled and endured to be able to country and to make a life here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, obviously, you know, years, and I don't know how many years it took you, Dr. Halter, to put, compile the information, to put it together in a, neatly in a, in a book format. Uh, as I mentioned, just the bibliography and the indexes is worth the price, uh, let alone the, the other stuff in there, because it's just a, it, it's a scholarly book, but it's written uh, in a very simple terms where it's not going over your head with uh, – you know, it's, you know, like you're not, it's not like you're writing it for your peers, your, your, your doctor's peers. You, you, you wrote it in a way that's very simple to understand, but there's a lot of uh, empirical data there that was amazing to kind of combine the two and present it in, in, in a way like that. That's why I think it's, it's easy for a high school student uh, to read it or even uh, younger. But we're running out of time, and I would like to conclude. Obviously, a sense of pride is when we see someone, um, of, uh, one of us, really have a lot of tremendous success and popularity and so forth. And there's, there's many that we could highlight and we could talk about in the past, but there is one person to me that I really want to have, and this Ms. Jeannie uh, Costa said that she will help me, but I don't know now if that's, you know, the, the, with the situation here. But there is a, a person that I have a lot of interest in simply from a historical point of view. 
Um, and if you could touch a little bit on just to give us a little bit of a understanding the impact, not just the impact that he had uh, him, uh, on his people, or the people that he dealt with, but the, 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 the bigger cultural impact in the United States, which is uh, Sweet Daddy Grace, one of the immigrants that came in through New Bedford and became a very, very wealthy man. Obviously, it's dealing with religion, and everyone has their own uh, opinion about that. But I look at it more from a historical point of view, and I think he's a historical figure. But if I tell you, almost like the, the, in the circles I run into, maybe 99% of the people don't know about who's Sweet Daddy Grace. Can you uh, please just touch on this, and we'll conclude with that. And, Marcy, you could uh, add whatever else you, you feel uh, it's appropriate to add on that. Marcy, isn't um, Sweet Daddy Grace uh, related? Um, yeah, he um, is. He's related on my grandmother's side. Right, right, right. Oh, really? Wow. wow. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I my did grandmother is a Grace. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very interested in, 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 in knowing more uh, about him. I already got some books, but uh, if, if you could please um, – just at, I think he's a very, very important historical figure. Uh, I believe he, he had a tremendous influence in the um, black American culture overall, uh, in American culture uh, as well. But, you know, Cape Verdeans don't know about him. Uh, I'm saying Cape Verdeans outside of New Bedford and outside of a certain uh, age group. At least the new generations that came through as immigrants I don't believe we have a good understanding in the impact that that this man had. Can you please uh, yeah. just um, touch a little bit on that? Certainly, certainly. So um, he, um, Sweet Daddy Grace, he was the founder of a um, charismatic evangelical, the Protestant revivalism had captured the spirit of, of um, this young man hailing from the island of Brava, and he founded the United House of Prayer for All People and um, established hundreds of congregations in numerous cities throughout the United States. I mean, he first came to New Bedford, like all the other immigrants, and he came, um, he arrived in New Bedford, I believe it was in 1900, and came with his family. Uh, and he was born, uh, as I say, in Brava. And um, he first worked in the city, and he worked on Cape Cod as a cook. And then um, he um, founded this, um, this whole, whole new religion. Um, and it was very popular actually in the South. He brought his message and his preaching to African Americans in the Southern United States. He traveled in what was called a gospel car. Um, and the community in the Wareham area didn't respond as well. As I had mentioned earlier, most Cape Verdeans were Catholic and he, um, you know, he, he did, the church is still there that he founded, but he really became popular and very wealthy um, when he did his traveling uh, to 
tent meetings in the rural south, um, and, um, you know, he became a bishop and organized the House of Prayer, and he, as I mentioned, he was very, um, you know, extravagant and wore colorful clothing. Uh, he was uh, interviewed in Ebony Magazine in the 1960s. Um, well, he died in 1960s, so it must have been in the 1950s when he was interviewed. And I, I can remember his quote. He said something like, I am a colorless man. Um, I'm a colorless bishop. Uh, sometimes I'm black, sometimes white. I preach to all races. Um, kind of a, 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 a very char- char- characteristically Cape Verdean um, identity, since we were just talking about identity. Um, yeah. So that's what I can tell you about Sweet Daddy Grace. Yeah, what a character. I mean, he really is, I I actually have spent quite a lot of time researching him because I, you know, partly because he is um, part of our family and an ancestor, but also because when I moved outside of the uh, New Bedford area where where I grew up in New Bedford, one one of the homes that I lived in growing up, he, United House of Prayer for All People is the, you know, church that's right around the corner from where I grew up. And they always have, um, they serve food on the weekends. And if you don't have, you know, Good. anybody can go and eat there. And they, he also had a music program that was there. So this was something that was just part of the community. Um, whether you agreed with his religious uh, practices or not, you can't deny the impact that this man had culturally um there isn't a, a, a predominantly black city in america where there is not a united house of prayer for all people but what really got me very like interested in his story was when i moved to new york city and i went to go visit the apollo and across the street occupying almost an entire block on 125th street was the united house of prayer for all people that still is there and at that point it became very apparent to me the impact that this man must have had and the amount of wealth that he must have had to have built a church of this stature on 125th street in Harlem. And from there I started to research and, you know, I moved to Newark, New Jersey, where there's also a United House of Prayer for all people. Um, I've been to Atlanta. There's one there. There's one in Savannah. And there's been many, uh, where was I in South, someplace in South Carolina. There's one there. There's one in DC. There's one in Philly. Um, there aren't very many places that I've been to that are considered predominantly black cities where there isn't a United House of Prayer for all people. So it's very interesting to me, this character, this figure, this person, and, you know, who, who he was. So I ended up becoming really sort of fascinated with his story. And what's interesting about him was that, you know, they claimed that at one point he was the richest black man in America. Whether he identified as being black or not, certainly people looked at him as being a black man. Um, he, you know, was very eccentric. He had a, a suit made of $100 bills. He had nails that were, you know, like two inches long. He had this, what they called a thigh back then. You know, his hair was blown out straight, and it was slicked back, very reminiscent uh, of what we see today in, um, uh, what is the gentleman's name, the the, um, the preacher that does civil rights. What's his name? Uh, his name is escaping me. Um, but he's very active in the civil rights movement. Um, James Brown took a lot of his on stage persona and swag from Sweet Daddy Grace, you know, the whole bit that James Brown does where he, you know, he kind of falls into a trance and then he bends over and they put a cape on top of him and he comes back up as a, as a king. He got that all from Sweet Daddy Grace. 
So a lot of the, you know, theatrical way in which Daddy Grace presented his sermons was um, emulated and has continued to be a part of the African-American culture to this day. Um, you know, a lot of what he did was really remarkable in the time. There's, a, there's an apartment building that's um, in New York City right next to Central Park on Central Park um, West. It's, you can see if you're in Central Park, you can see it has two towers. At one point, it was the, the tallest building in Manhattan and the most luxurious apartment building. Well, he bought that apartment in cash in cash. It's called the El Dorado. Um, it's an iconic place. He bought it in 1953. And at that point, they wouldn't sell it to a black man. So he had to have, he, he had his lawyer who was, a, he had a Jewish lawyer and he had his lawyer purchase this apartment for him because they would not sell it to him. And he used that apartment as a place for the people in his congregation to live and to worship. And so, you know, whether you agree with him or not, there were a lot of things that he did, a lot of contributions that he did make. He, if a child was interested in music, he would buy them instruments. He would educate them. Um, if you didn't have money, he would feed you. Uh, and he made a huge impact in the, in the, in, in what was happening um, at the time. And even to this day, you know, when he died, he left all of his money to the church. This was an extremely wealthy man. This man had mansions and, he had one in New Jersey, he had one in Los Angeles, and he left all that money to the church. And what's so incredible about that is that that church is still operating today because of that endowment that he left behind. So I think that this is just another um, story about the legacy of Cape Verdeans in America that is not always known. A lot of people don't know that this is a Cape Verdean man because his last name is Grace and not Grasa even though that was his name when he first came over, it was anglicized to be grace. And I think that there's a lot of stories like that. There's other people that Michael Beach, who's a prominent Hollywood actor, um, is also Cape Verdean. And there's a lot of Cape Verdeans that are out there sort of undercover that people don't necessarily know are Cape Verdean. Because again, as I said earlier, we sort of get absorbed into the larger American culture and fall under the umbrella of what it means to be black in America or African in America as opposed to having this distinct Cape Verdean identity that is nationally known. Uh, beautiful, uh, Marcy. And uh, yeah. in fact, uh, I, I, learned, I learned about that through a book called The Renegade History of the United States. Um, I read that, and it was a chapter on it. It just blew me away. Uh, and a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff you mentioned was kind of uh, highlighted there. But I say that because, you know, we we tend to be absorbed into the bigger the bigger culture, but it was uh, I I mentioned him because he's unique because he actually mm-hmm. influenced the bigger culture where it's mm-hmm. the other way around. But we know there is a laundry list of a lot of people that deserve our respect and uh, admiration for their accomplishments and so forth, and and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to do that. But um, I want to thank you both. I mean, this was amazing. And hopefully people will will listen to this and they will right away uh, go to Amazon and purchase the book. And what, one of the things I want to do, and I'm, I'm going to reach out to Ms. Jeannie Croft as well, is um, on, my, on the page, the website, uh, I don't sell any merchandise, but what I want to do is do, uh, I do donations where just for the price of it, I want to get a few books. So, Dr. Halter, if you could find, if there's a way 
where outside of just uh, Amazon, if I could get, like, say, starting out, like, 10 books, and I would just hold on to it, and people could make donations to the, the page, and I would send them the book. So they could choose either the book, either one of those books. I, I believe so much in these two books that I want to have it available. So if, if, there would be no excuse uh, for people to say, ah, oh, I can't find it. But if they come to the page, and for the price of it, uh, with no um, profit to be gained, they could make a donation, and I will send them uh, the book. So I want to make it readily available as well. But we could talk. We could talk about that, and um, you know, whenever you have time, and we could coordinate that. Because if it's not available, I'll just go through Amazon and just buy ten and hold on to it and and, and do it that way. But I really, really want to people to to have this book because this is a very, very important book, and. Um, Marcy, please, any other resource that you could, you could share with me through Messenger or email, what have you, on the uh, Sweet Daddy Grace, uh, I would really appreciate it because there's only a few books that I found. And there's also mm-hmm. one of his church, a beautiful, big church in Boston. It's right behind Franklin Park Zoo. Uh, I forgot the name of the street. It's one of the, the big avenues that goes right into Angleston Square, if not too far from White Stadium, a lot of people know that area is becoming a very uh, expensive area of Boston. It's not too far from Blue Hill Ave. So there is a beautiful, beautiful church there. That church is huge. I mean, it's not your typical church. It's it's like one of these big Catholic churches, but the maintenance of it is, is impeccable. It's always in great shape. It's always painted. It's always clean. Um, So I think he's someone that we need to know, uh, at least from a historical point of view, because I'm very proud to to know that there's some connection there of someone that accomplished so much out of nothing. He came with nothing. And he was able to make such a big influence. But uh, I'll I'll leave the last words uh, for each each one of you, and and then we will just conclude. And I'm very, very appreciative. I, I really am for both of you. And I anticipated Marcy uh, adding on, but, I mean, this was way beyond what. I thought she would just drop a few things, but she definitely made, you definitely made a, a, an incredible, uh, you made this much, much better. You def- definitely blessed this um, this podcast way beyond my uh, expectations. But uh, so I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Uh, Halter, whatever uh, um, closing remarks um, that you may have. Well, I just, um, I just feel grateful. I feel grateful that um, you were persistent in, um, in uh, inviting me and getting me to uh, respond. And, and, and I, I, so, um, I so appreciate the regard for which you uh, have uh, demonstrated uh, for this research that was done a long time ago. But um, it, it, it just warms my heart uh, that you uh, recognize that contribution and um, have given me the opportunity to talk about the book and then to be able to uh, discuss it with Marcy, <laughs> who is such a big part of my heart. Um, I just, I'm, I'm just very thankful. So big thank you to both of you. 
Yeah, to echo uh, what Dr. Halter was saying, thank you so much for uh, providing this forum for, for us to be able to um, get more in touch with our history and culture. And I'm so grateful. Dr. Halter, Marilyn, my, bo- my bonus mom, I'm so, so grateful for you and for the work that you've done in contributing to our culture because truly this, that in particular, between race and ethnicity has not only impacted my life greatly, outside of knowing you personally, I know several people that feel the same way. I mean, when, pe- when people find out, it's come up in conversations, oh, this book, and they say, oh, that's, you know, that's my bonus mother. People are floored. So because of you, I'm, I, I get more kudos and points. So thank you so much for the work and the contribution that you have made to Cape Verdean American culture and history in this country. And thank you, Louise, for having me. This has really been a pleasure. Yes. uh, Well, uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, As you know, I'm very grateful and hopefully it comes out in a very sincere manner because um, I'm grateful for the work, for putting this together, this book. I think it's, uh, it's necessary and I'm glad someone uh, someone did it, and um, uh, so with that, again, I hopefully we will get a, a opportunities to really um, uh, connect um, in the future, Dr. Halter. However, you feel that if you have a any way that I could get uh, some of these books in bulk, I would I would love that because it's a great gift. Um, if I think books are wonderful gifts to give people that nowadays. You don't want to. You don't know how much you want to spend. You don't know what to give. But you give somebody this book right here. It's a tremendous impact if they can, if they could take the time and open the pages and, and read it. Even if they don't read it, somebody will read it if they just have it at their house. So uh, to me, this is one of the gifts you could give someone. It doesn't cost much, but it's worth a tremendous amount of value. Uh, the value on it is incredible. So I encourage people to get it as gifts for others, get it for themselves. Uh, so hopefully we will get that. And, and Marcy, hopefully we'll get a, more opportunities to collaborate so so I could take some of your knowledge and, and information and help spread them uh, a little bit more um, uh, and, and allow people to, get, uh, to benefit from it. So thank you again, ladies, uh, very, very much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay. okay. Bon night. All right. Bon night. Good night. Okay. Uh, obrigado pelo estudo que tra tempo para obi esse programa ali. Pronto. Esse programa foi dirigido à memória de grande, grande pessoa de cultura. Norberto Tavares, uh, mas também recentemente eu tive a uh, notícia de morte de um outro grande, grande uh, calverdiano, uh, Sr. Cacá uh, Barbosa, é, é mais conhecido para Cacá Barbosa, e escritor, político, um, um, um grande ser humano que faz essa transição. Uh, portanto, não está esse programa ali, um de que música mais popular e de os tubarões que foi escrito para ele que é somada e tem muito várias outras músicas
Mas uma música que eu ouvi que na minha tempo de minha infância. E é uma música que também que traz saudade de local de onde que boy é. Portanto, muita gente nós que os tubarões somados também em memória, nosso grande poeta, nosso grande intelectual, calverdiano, ser humano, senhor Cacá Barbosa, e também manda mensagens de condolências para tudo ser família e amigos mais íntimos e também para um, um perda para, para Cabo Verde uh, para nessa transição físico mas se trabalho que fica para não aproveita e para não beneficiará ok continuação de um boa noite bom semana bom fim de semana e um abraço para tudo Cabo Verdeano para tudo parte do mundo <música> Yeah. 